The Supreme Court takes a new Second Amendment case, plus a rabbi from the New York State Jewish Gun Club on a federal judge upholding the synagogue carry ban. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no hold on me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter. If you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America, this week we have an update on the fight over the church and synagogue gun ban in New York State. There is a new ruling that has come out in favor of that ban from a federal judge in New York. So this week we are having uh, somebody who's directly affected by this ruling on with us. Uh, welcome to the show, Herschel Goldstein. How are you, you doing today, sir? Excellent. Thank you for having me. And you are um, you're a rabbi and you're, you live in Rockland, New York, which is about an hour north of New York City in the, the Southern District for federal uh, cases, Correct. which is where this ruling comes out of. And you're also a, a member of the New York State Jewish Gun Club, right? Correct. Okay, and so you're directly affected by what happened here. Yes, yes, I am. Can I get your reaction? What uh, just detail for us uh, how this affects you? You know, this judge upheld this this law, but obviously the whole situation is pretty fluid and complicated. Um, how are you today affected on the ground by this? Okay, so just a disclaimer: I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice, right? Sure. Um, I, this is extremely frustrating. This ruling, um, New York State actually voided this law and changed it before the judge got around to issuing this ruling. So even New York State is not defending this as lawful. But the federal judge still, the federal judge still comes down and says, oh, yeah, I think it's fine. So um, I, I think the federal judges down here uh, and their refusal to uphold the Constitution, uphold, uh, refusal to defend the Constitution is just, just horrible. Mm. It's really bad. And, and this, I want to go ahead this, and, and this, I want to talk to you a little bit about what this law did to us and how these emergency laws keep coming down. It's like a it's like a tidal wave of law after law after law. And you go to court and you wait around for a decision, you know, you get three more laws before the first one was adjudicated. Right. And well, for those who don't know, we, we did a podcast earlier with uh, a colleague of yours who's the founder of the, the New York State uh, Jewish Gun Club, uh, Zvi Waldman. Uh, but Anybody who doesn't understand what's going on here, can you just describe how how this law, as it was originally enacted, worked? Okay, so we're going to go before Bruin, or we're going to go where we're going after, with this? after for, Bruin. So this, this for, is for hundred for hundred years, we had mm -hmm. to fight in New York to even get a carry permit. Right. You apply, you have no criminal background, you have no mental health background, you apply for a permit, and you didn't give a good enough reason. Well, they're targeting synagogues, they're killing Jews. Not a good enough reason uh to get a gun to get a you know a little to hold a little glock on your person when you you know concealed when you go to synagogue okay so bruin comes down and says you got to issue these uh to everybody who applies for them immediately in the middle of the night the uh, legislature in albany um supermajority democrat come out and say well we have to do the concealed carry improvement act you know they always have these you know orwellian terms and they say well, you can get a permit, but you can't carry in a sensitive area. And uh, really, the, the term sensitive area is a misnomer because Bruin is talking about a sensitive government area. 
you know, in the legislative body, in the polling booth, in the court. And uh, New York State said, well, a sensitive area includes any public property. Uh, it includes a whole bunch of places. But one of the places it includes is any place of worship or religious observation. So if I wear a right. kippah, is that a place of religious observation? Can I never exercise my my right my Second Amendment rights to carry? Hmm. Um, a place of worship. So does that mean if I get together at work with ten guys, you know, middle of the day to pray? We we pray three times a day, Orthodox Jews. So you know, we pray in the morning in a synagogue. We pray at night in a synagogue. In the middle of the day, I mean, we're at work. We get together ten minutes. We throw it together. We call it mincha. We pray. Is that a place of worship where we gather to pray every day? It's unclear. And I'm a felon if I walk into that prayer group carrying, right? Mm -hmm. So am I going to exercise my Second Amendment right to carry or am I going to exercise my First Amendment right to pray? Right. Yeah, so, it's unclear to some of that stuff, but it's very clear that they definitely mean synagogues, right? Well, they, they definitely mean synagogues. And place of religious observation, I mean, the attorney general tried to argue, well, maybe it means another place of worship gathering places, meaning they try to reference some sort of groups that don't have establishments, mm -hmm. um, you know, places that they like, go out and pray in the field. So they take it very broadly. Yeah, they take it very broadly is what you're saying. Yeah, um, but places of worship are places of worship. Hmm. And, you know, and, th and that's and one of the problems. Well, one of the problems is I can't exercise my Second Amendment right and my First Amendment right. Um, the federal government is not allowed to discriminate on the basis of religion. Mm -hmm. So we had the, um, when COVID came out, we had the archdiocese versus Cuomo. And Cuomo said, well, you can't have big stores. You can't have small stores. You have to have, uh, you know, they had the, uh, the red zones, the yellow zones, the, the green zones, but no synagogues. You can't pray in a synagogue. And the courts came out and said, well, you can have a tiny synagogue, you can have a massive synagogue, you can have a tiny church, you can have a massive church. So church is not a proxy for a large gathering. It can't be. And the, the New York argued that, well, when we say church, we mean a large gathering. And the court said, no, you're, you're targeting religion. That's what you're doing. And that's what we argued here as well. When you say you can't carry in a synagogue, it doesn't say if it's a 10-person synagogue, it doesn't say if it's a massive synagogue, it doesn't say if it's in New York City. It doesn't say it's out in the bungalow. It's just a synagogue. And the federal judge here made the uh, same error that the federal judge made in Archdiocese versus Cuomo at the trial level, saying, well, you regulate a lot of places. You regulate subways. You regulate uh, airports. And you regulate synagogues. And uh, the Supreme Court didn't, uh, didn't take that in Archdiocese v. Cuomo. And I think this is going to be overturned on appeal as well. You okay. say you say church place of worship. That's that's regulating religion. That's discrimination on the basis of religion. And that's right. not lawful. And so that, that's how you feel about this restriction, right? The, this sensitive place restriction that it, it's not just infringing on your Second Amendment right to carry a gun, uh, but also on your First Amendment right to worship. Correct. Correct. And we never would have brought this uh, case in the Southern District if we wanted a good Second Amendment ruling. The, the Southern District is a horrible Second Amendment place. And we see in the Northern District, we're getting all these good Second Amendment rulings about, you know, where's the, you know, what the historical, um, you know, what the historical tradition. history is, yeah. tradition, yeah, mm -hmm. for regulating uh, synagogues or regulating sensitive places. But for the First Amendment, I mean, you shouldn't be discriminating on the basis of religion. It's a pretty basic concept. 
And uh, we're very surprised that this judge would come down and say, yeah, we're regulating places of worship, but we're also regulating a lot of other stuff, so it doesn't matter. Hmm. That's just that's just gibberish. And this is this is the second case that you guys at the um, the national or sorry the, the New York State Jewish Gun Club have been involved with. There was another case previously with the same judge, right? Uh, there's several other cases. I'm I'm not sure all of them. Mm-hmm. I think this is the first. Uh, is this the first federal lawsuit uh, that we've backed? So um, a bunch of state state court lawsuits as well, and freedom of information and other stuff. But I'm, I'm not a yeah, yeah. He, right. I know you're not a lawyer, but you have um, you were you consulted on this case, or you you uh, helped with organizing it, right? You you're not so, a plaintiff. There's a plaintiff no, named Stephen no, Goldstein. No, I'm not. I'm not Stephen Goldstein. You're not. I'm, I'm Herschel Goldstein. Right. Yeah. When when this law came out in the middle of the night, we went scrambling. We had to fundraise. We had to identify. Um, what type of plaintiffs, what type of case we should bring. You know, one of the things the judge says is, oh, you waited three months to file this lawsuit. This law passed. There was no, you know, notice and comment period. This law passed instantly. We had to fundraise. I mean, all these lawsuits are expensive. And we had to identify correct plaintiffs. A lot of people who have, we wanted someone who had a full carry permit on the one hand, so they could legally carry before Bruin. But we also didn't want anyone who had a security guard license because there's an exception in the law if you're also a security guard. So a lot of people who are going through the effort to get a license to carry in New York add a security guard license as well, just to have that additional qualification. So we had to find a plaintiff who had one but didn't have the other. And then we wanted someone, obviously, who was willing to, to file the lawsuit and be a plaintiff when we found two plaintiffs. All this takes time. You know, in drafting, you know, what issues should we bring? Where, where should we file? All this stuff takes time. So, um, yeah, it was it was a lot of work. Um, a day before the um, the judge calls it a hearing. We never had a hearing. A hearing is where someone goes into court, raises their hand, and testifies. I'm the plaintiff. This is how I'm affected. Someone comes in from New York and says, you know, this is the legislative uh, process. Here's what we considered. Here's the security. We had an oral argument. Again, the judge is playing really fast and loose. That's not a hearing. That's a, he, he took oral argument from the lawyers. He did not allow anyone to testify. Yeah, the and night I, I before, know that you have more uh, yeah. complaints about how he's yeah. the judge handled this case. Right, but I, but I, will, I, I do want to get yeah. to those. But, right, but I'm, I'm uh, also telling you my involvement is the night before yeah. the oral argument, at 9 o'clock at night, we get an email from the judge with 17 questions that he wants answered. Like, what's the history of this? What's the history of that? One hmm. of our plaintiffs was on a plane you know, to Israel at the time. One of our plaintiffs was in Australia at the time and was asleep. We had to find someone to wake them up so we could get answers to these questions. How many times did you go to synagogue? How many times did you carry? When we had a hearing, when we had the oral argument scheduled for nine o'clock the next morning, this is less than 12 hours overnight. And so we're scrambling, we're drafting it. And again, you don't draft something once. You got to read it and reread it and proofread it. So, you know, all this had to happen behind the scenes in order to get the case where it was but anyways back to uh, the uh to the yeah decision. But so, so uh and i know that's not the only uh issues you have yeah. with the process here uh and we'll get to some of that in a little bit especially when yeah. we talk about the the larger implications of this ruling and the larger sure. uh sort of uh, atmosphere it's happening in the legal atmosphere but before we do that let's talk a little bit about the specific claims in the case and the judge's ruling itself so you know you guys were obviously were using the bruin standard the the new standard created in um, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin in 2022, where 
now, uh, for a, a gun law to be constitutional, it has to sh- uh, de- the the defendants, the state has to demonstrate that it's consistent with the historical tradition. And you guys said it, that the these regulations on carrying, you know, this effective ban on carrying a gun in a synagogue or a church, um, if you have a license to do to, you know, you're a licensed carrier, you're somebody who's passed the background check, you've done the training required, um, you still can't carry there. You're saying that's not constitutional, right? That was the, the basis uh, that there's Correct. no historical analog to anything like that, right? Correct. So that was the Second Amendment claim. The Second Amendment claim is the state government has to show how at the time of the founding, how the constitutional right was recognized the right, the right to carry. So if there was a restriction at the time of the founding, then that would be lawful now. So at the time of the founding, they had laws where you could not carry into a legislative session. They had laws that you couldn't carry into a courthouse. They had laws that you couldn't carry into a polling place. Uh, these were very, um, by the way, there were no polling places at the time of the founding. This was a brand new invention, right? Until, until the founding, the polling place was the battlefield. That's where we had our political differences. So they would assume that a polling place would be a place of, you know, bloodshed, of, of strife, of people fighting. And that hasn't been our experience, thankfully, in, in this democracy. I mean, we have a peaceful transition of power. But um, at the time of the founding, who was regulating guns in a synagogue? They probably didn't even know where the synagogues were at the time of the founding or, or the churches or whatever. So this was not historically um, a regulated, a government regulated place. I've never seen a cop in my synagogue. They're not providing security in synagogues. Um, you know, my child's daycare. You think you've got a cop outside, you know, my private daycare uh, where my child's going? Uh, you know, they're saying, oh, it's a sensitive government area. These are not, these are not historically where the government has, um, has provided security, has locked the place down, has said we're going to check everyone for guns, we're going to secure the area, we're not going to allow, you know, uh, protests to get, you know, violent and, and uh, you know, spill into the legislature. Um, that That's the type of thing the court was talking about in Bruin, where there was an historical um, government focus on protecting these areas. That never existed in a, in a place of worship. Right. Uh, now, the judge obviously disagreed with this. And he, uh, and then one of the key things to his ruling that well, I think... Well, he didn't really disagree with it because of, he didn't find any case at the time of the founding. What he said was that right. at the time of the, Reconstruction, right? Yeah, so this is re- this is what I mean. Yeah, like he, he did. Yes. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't find. He, he didn't use examples of laws from the founding era. What he Correct. did instead was use examples of Correct. various gun bans, really uh, that were Reconstruction era. So he's right. This and is why a, is that relevant? Tell us, Steve. Well, you know, his argument is, uh, and this has become an increasing. Uh, increasingly common argument that you'll see in in court from uh, state defendants that the relevant period should be extended to when the 14th Amendment was ratified because the 14th Amendment is how uh, the Second Amendment was incorporated to the states, how Second Amendment actions were incorporated to the states. And so that seems to be where he's come down on this, that, that, uh, you know, there were some gun bans or carry bans, they, they're not all really similar to each other, the ones he cites, but they Correct. they all come from the South in Reconstruction era after the 14th Amendment right. was ratified. Um, and that's why there's a basis to do this. And, and I wonder, like, do you think that line of reasoning is going to be a, 
uh, a hurdle for you guys as you approach the second circuit, um, which is obviously a more left-leaning circuit traditionally on gun issues. Uh, this argument might be something that they are persuaded by. Are you worried about that at all? Uh, the second circuit is not a, um, a friendly forum, definitely. And uh, we may see a circuit split. And again, the only way to get a case up to the Supreme Court usually is to get a circuit split. So if you get a favorable ruling out of Texas and you get an unfavorable ruling out of the Second Circuit, that's how you can get up to the Supreme Court. So it's kind of the kind of the process. Uh, one of the things the judge said is, you know, blacks didn't have the right to carry at the time of the founding. So therefore, maybe no one should have the right to carry now, which is such a bizarre racist argument. You know, blacks didn't have the right, you know, against search and seizure. Are we going to take that right away now from everybody because they didn't have it at the time of the founding? Um, th this was uh, the judge was very highly motivated. If you if you read the transcript, I was actually there at the oral argument. Talking about race, talking about religion, you know, what specific religions are, you know, are more Second Amendment focused. This is totally it's legal gibberish. We treat everyone the same. We treat blacks, whites, Jews, Hispanics, Asians. We treat everyone the same in this country. Everyone has the same rights. And if we didn't do it at one point, then we fix that and we give the same rights to everyone. We don't say, well, because the blacks didn't have the rights, you know, at the time of the founding, so I'm not going to apply those rights now. It's it's gibberish. And he didn't even put that in the decision because, you know, he probably wrote it and then, you know, hit backspace because it's it's ridiculous. So you're saying he said that during the, the yeah. oral arguments that you Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because there was a section in the ruling. Because uh, I didn't see that argument in there, like you said. Correct. But he did. He did talk about because um, uh, I, the case that you guys brought cited um, founding era laws that required people to carry guns in church um, because those did exist. Um, but he claimed that they were racially motivated laws; that they were motivated uh, by the fear of either slave insurrection or Native American attacks and therefore shouldn't be considered, which I thought was interesting because, frankly, a lot of those laws that he's citing, uh, you know, some of them are a bit more explicit in, in what he's talking about, but many of them aren't. And at the same time, New York has used explicitly racist gun bans as the basis for many of their legal arguments in uh, defending its post-Bruin uh, restrictions. And, and I just thought it was odd to see that, um, you know, that, that it's <laughs> the potential that some of these uh, carry, you know, requirements to pe for people to be armed at church uh, had motivations that um, were <laughs> unsavory. And I think that is even kind of questionable, um, is makes them ineligible for consideration in this case. But I haven't seen any of the judges uh, in the Second Circuit say that the explicitly racist ban, like literally just don't sell guns to Native Americans or or African-Americans, um, aren't aren't uh, allowed in for the same reasons. Right. If you subscribe to critical race theory, then everything is race. You know, one plus one equals racism. Finished. And that's your starting point and that's your conclusion. And you, you know, bump into some other. You know, irrelevant facts along the way, like constitutional rights and 
know, people actually shooting up synagogues and, and uh, whatnot. But anyway, that's kind of an aside. I just thought it was an interesting uh, bit in there where he's he's rejecting these uh, actual founding era laws because uh, he believed that they were racially motivated. But we've seen uh, it's just sort of a quirk of how these cases have come out, I guess. If, if, uh, by the way, if there's going to be an Indian, if, there, laws in the other if there's going to be an Indian attack on your synagogue and you don't want to be attacked, is that race? Is that racism? Right. That no, was, that, that's that is, I think, a little bit of a weird. Uh, you have uh, to stretch to find extension. racism everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, where are we at now? Let, let's talk about this. So, you know, uh, this judge has upheld this this provision, this total ban on carry out other than people who have the security guard uh, clearances, even though the but the state, as you mentioned earlier, has given up on this. Basically, Correct. Right. What, Correct. what is the status of the law at this moment? So the law, the law that the state enacted that we challenged was it's a sensitive area you may never carry, no matter what permission you have, no matter how many permits you have, unless you're a licensed security guard insured and everything or a police officer, you cannot carry in a place of worship or a place of religious observation. That was the law that was passed. In the budget from 2023, so that passed, I don't know, a few months, maybe a month ago, not that long ago, they removed the second half, which is place of religious observation. So that's out entirely. And they modified the first part, place of worship, to conform with the district court decision out of the Northern District. I forget which, I think it was Antioch versus Hochul, which said there must be a, um, there must be an exception for people designated to security. So currently, as the law reads now, a place of worship is a sensitive area unless you're designated as security. So if you come in off the street to a synagogue, you can't carry. If the rabbi or pastor or priest gives you permission, you can't carry. If the rabbi says you're in char- you're part of the security team, now you can carry. Okay. That's how the law reads now. Now, the backstory to that, which I don't think the federal judge in the Northern District picked up on, is in the... New York securities law, if you are designated as a security guard or you're designated to perform security, you have to be licensed and insured. Otherwise, it's a misdemeanor. Oh, really? Yes. So you have to be a security guard anyway. Hmm. That's how you read this new law is that it's kind of there's a new exception, but it's kind of the same thing. So, no. Well, the, the law says what it says. And the misdemeanor is probably on the organization, not on the person. So okay. instead of being instead of being a felon when you carry it to synagogue, if you're designated as security, you're a felon if you're just given permission, or the state can go after the synagogue for not having the proper insurance and not having I all see. the people licensed as security guards. So because they have think, to officially designate you as part of the security, security. team, and, and if, if you're they do that, they have to even voluntary. Even if you're doing it for free, New York requires you to be licensed. Okay. So take you, we're going to have to do a deep dive into the uh, securities law and the regulations and all that wonderful uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I don't think the federal judge understood New York state law that well and all the intricacies and how, you know, mm-hmm. there's always another law. I mean, there's so right. many laws you have to dig through. You can't just wake up one morning and say, I'm going to be a law abiding citizen. I mean, you have to study this stuff and then maybe, you know, you could take a step out onto the street. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So I guess in the in the end, though, that means that there's been less 
practical change for your average, uh, you know, worshiper than uh, what it might appear on the surface? Well, I, I think I think not. So number one, place religious observation is out. So if I walk around wearing yarmulke, just down the street, carrying, I'm not a felon anymore. So that's yeah. out. And I think that's a total vindication. And okay. the fact that the judge doesn't even discuss that, he, he mentions in a footnote, well, you know, they took that out, so I'm not going to address it. Well, wait a second. You just made all religious observation a felony if you're carrying. And we brought a lawsuit and the state rescinded it. So tell us we won, right? Tell mm. us that was illegal. Tell us that the state shouldn't do that again when they make the next emergency legislation or the next emergency act. Mm. So and, number and one, that, that was a big win. Yeah. But but otherwise so for synagogues i was designated to this to to our synagogue security team well before brewing so i'm no longer a felon if i carry in my synagogue that's good practically um you know whether the synagogue is going to get in trouble if they look into whether we're properly insured for you know security guards at least i'm not a personal felon when i carry in my personal synagogue now if i go but to the there's synagogue still some across risk. the street well Legally, there are still there's still some risk. Yes, right. legally there's still okay. some risk, but the risk is much lower. And again, if a cop pull, you know, you know, if, if I'm involved in a shooting or I'm pulled over, and a cop finds a, a firearm in a synagogue, you know, they have to prove that I didn't have, I wasn't designated to the security team in order to prosecute me as a felon for carrying in a sensitive place. And I think practically that's a big difference. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fair, but at the same time, it's uh, it's not as though anyone any worshiper can carry even if they have a permit. Um, so there's still there's still quite a lot there that you guys would like to see changed at the end of the day. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, and so that's perhaps one of the reasons why you know this this case still matters, right, going forward, especially because uh, as you mentioned, they could just change the law again uh, at any time if they wanted to. If you don't get uh, a final ruling from uh, you know, these judges that that uh, says you, this is unconstitutional. Correct. And they keep passing new emergency rulings. The COVID ruling saying you couldn't carry in a synagogue, you couldn't go to a synagogue was passed as, as an emergency ruling. The Supreme Court said, hey, you're discriminating on the basis of religion. Here they pass an emergency ruling. You can't carry a gun in the synagogue as an emergency ruling. They Because they... They're very, New York is very litigious and they're very happy to change the laws. They have a supermajority. It doesn't take them any time at all. Um, you know, what's the next law that's going to come down the line? If we don't stop them at every turn and we just let them run roughshod, then they're going to run roughshod. Freedom isn't free. We have to uh, protect it. Thank God, you know, it's pretty easy for us to protect freedom. We just go into a court. It's air conditioned. You know, uh, it's I mean, it's some money, but it, this is relatively easy for us to protect freedom compared to. I mean, people fighting in Soviet Russia or North Korea or China yep. to, to, to get their freedoms. Yes, we, uh, we still have, have to protect uh, what we have. Yeah, still yeah, have the ability have. to redress our grievances here in the yeah. United States, thankfully, even yeah. if it doesn't always go our way and it doesn't always uh, go as quickly as we would like to see. Right. Correct. But, uh, that's that is a very important and good yeah. point. But if we let um, it go, they're, they're going to go. They'll, they'll take all the power they can get if we don't if we don't push back. So we and push so. Back. So uh, let's talk about the landscape now, the legal landscape after this, because there were three with the three other three other rulings uh, in New York, northern and I think western, or so. Two, but I guess there were three rulings out of two. There different was another districts. one. 
There was, I think there were four. There's four at the, at the, at the Second Circuit right now. Okay. Already but this, the, uh, in this specific, this specific restriction has been litigated a lot, is I guess the yeah. point. And in every other case outside of the Southern District, it's lost, right, this restriction. Correct. One of them was was more addressing the um, the FFL and the fire the um, the uh, sales and and stuff. So that's that was yeah, one well, of the that there was were other the cases. cases. Yeah, yeah, there the were, there three, were other cases about the overall yeah. law, but there yeah, the, the, yeah, one the of other the most, three, yeah the other three mm-hmm. all found that this was unconstitutional. Right. This has been grounds. one of the most litigated points of this Correct. new law, and it's Correct. lost except for in this case. Right, which just goes to show you, New York. I mean, you could have done this in a smart way. They didn't want to. They wanted to openly come and say, we can violate any constitutional law we want. We will outlast you. It took you 100 years to knock down the old one. We'll just keep passing laws. You courts are too slow. Uh, you you knock down one, we'll pass another. And, uh, you know, eventually we'll win. In the meantime, we'll win. Uh, they have no respect for for the courts or the constitutional process. And, you know, so that, that's, so- I, yeah, that I think that's their attitude. Uh, someone at I, it was during the governor debate between Hochul and Lee Zeldin, mm-hmm. and Hochul said we got legal guns. She didn't say illegal guns. She said we got legal guns off the street in New York, and Lee Zeldin said well, that's unconstitutional. It'll get struck down in the courts. And she said, well, we've got good lawyers, and we'll just play it out in the courts, and who yeah. cares? But you expect to win in the end. Here is what is Absolutely. how you feel. Absolutely. Now, right now, and if not this case, it'll be the next case because mm-hmm. we're not backing down from this. New York cannot do this. They cannot. Uh, what did the judge write? He said, you know, you can choose. You can either go to synagogue or you can carry, you know, you can choose which constitutional right you want. One of the uh, the interesting legal arguments here is what is a sensitive area? Because the Supreme Court kind of threw out there, you know, four examples, courts, legislative bodies, polling and schools. So what does that grouping give you, right? So the New York AG argued any place where you exercise a constitutional right, that's where we can take away your Second Amendment. That was her argument. If you're exercising a constitutional right and worship is a constitutional right, that's where we can take away your Second Amendment. What about the home? Well, the home's an exception. So New York's position is if you are exercising any constitutional right, you don't want to be searched and seized, you want to have freedom of expression, you want the right to a lawyer, you want the right to remain silent, you have to give up your right to the Second Amendment. That's their position. It's crazy. But so, um, yeah, I mean, I guess they, they argue things like, uh, yeah, if you're... Um, that having guns around can be intimidating to people while they're worshiping or while they're. We only have concealed so carry. Mm-hmm. If you if you print just a, if anyone can claim that they saw a firearm, and they report that to the police, you're getting arrested. All right, so we're talking about concealed carry here. There's no open carry in New York. Nothing. We're talking about a little pistol that you hide in your pants. All right, you pull out anything else in your pants, you're also getting arrested. There's no reason. There's no reason that to to restrict. There's absolutely no reason. By the way, I want to I want to give you some examples of of um, even courts, even polling places. You don't always see security there. Um, often in small claims court, uh, you know, not in the county courts, the little small claims court, the little landlord tenant courts. 
There's no security there. There's no one, there's no one manning the place. So what? The, the government's providing protection? The government's taking away all your rights to protect yourself and saying, well, what happens, happens. How is that good policy? How is that responsible? It's not. And so uh, just to wrap things up here, now you're headed up to the Second Circuit. You guys are planning to appeal this case. Um, uh, there is also an issue with timing, right? The, is this going to get lumped in with the other cases we discussed earlier where they, they're already at the Second Circuit? The Second Circuit's already going through uh, you know, the procedure on considering those cases. Is this one going to get left behind? What, what do you think is going to happen with it? So um, I, I don't know the, the procedure so well, but I can't imagine that this case is going to get lumped in with those. Those cases have exp expedited briefing schedules. Right. So usually there's a regular briefing schedule, you mail in your brief, you mail in your record, you get 30 days, you get an extension, you get a second extension. All those cases were already briefed and argued months ago. So there's no way that this case is going to get briefed and argued and decided along with those cases. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. If anything, um, you know, hopefully that decision will come out and we'll ask this judge to reconsider. But again, we only have 30 days to appeal and the appellate record is what we have until now. So we have to appeal this case as it is. Do you think it'll get put on hold while those other ones are being considered then? I, I think we're going to get, no, I, I think we're going to get that decision any day now. And by the time the briefs are filed, we're going to be citing those circuit cases. Okay. In Interesting. Our favor. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Which should make for an easy appeal because there's yeah. no way those cases are going to lose in the second circuit either. So you're confident that the other cases uh, against this uh, this place of worship, church, synagogue restriction uh, that they're going to win? 100%. 100%. Okay. I have no doubt in my mind. And if they don't, uh, are you prepared to go all the way to the Supreme Court? Absolutely. And we'll probably join up with those at the Supreme Court if it goes that way. It'll okay. be because, if, again, if we lose, it's a, it's a quick decision. You know, just cite that case, pass this along, you know? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your your involvement in this the case and your experience up there in New York with uh, fighting against this this new restriction. Um, and yeah, we'll have to have you or or Z Waldman on again in the future just to update us as this all progresses because uh, we like to try and talk to people who are directly affected and involved in these situations whenever we can because uh, I think that's you know, the sensible thing to do. Um, and so I really appreciate you joining us and, 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 uh, where can people find out more about, uh, New York state Jewish gun club if they'd like to. I think you Google New York state Jewish gun club. You'll find us. We're online. All right. Wonderful. Um, we're going to head on over to our news update now. Thank you so much for being okay. with us. Thanks for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined, of course, by Stephen Gatowski. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, uh, especially because we have a sort of a special news update for the listeners this week because we got some breaking <laughs> news the day that we record the podcast, some huge Supreme Court news. Uh, if yes. you want to tell us what the Supreme Court just decided to do. Yes, this is our second attempt at the news update because uh, we had to refilm <laughs> because this is bigger news than anything else that's gone on this week. Uh, and that is that the Supreme court has accepted a new gun case, uh, about one year after they, they handed down their decision in New York state rifle and pistol association V Bruin, which set up a new test for how to 
determine whether a gun law is constitutional or not. Um, now they're taking up a case on this question. And uh, it's a case called United States v. Rahimi. comes out of the Fifth Circuit. We've written a bit about this in the past, or actually quite a lot about this case uh, in the past. A uh, number of analysis pieces from members over on the Reload, if you want to go and check those out. Uh, right, you know, today, get a membership, uh, you can do that. But uh, it's a pretty significant move because this is actually, so this is only the seventh Second Amendment case that the court has ever taken in its history, right? This, uh, major ones, at least. And it's the third of the, three of those seven have come in the last three years. Uh, one was mooted. There was a New York case before New York State Rifle and uh, Pistol Association that got mooted. Then there was Bruin, and now there's Rahimi. So um, it's going to be very significant because there's just not a lot of case law. There's not a lot of jurisprudence from the Supreme Court on the Second Amendment, what it means, what its limits are. And so here we're, we're going to find out uh, some more answers to those questions. Yep, it's definitely huge because not only because of what it says for Second Amendment jurisprudence, which is obviously critically important, but I think this case in particular is makes it that much more significant because of just the sheer amount of headlines that this ruling initially generated when it was handed down. Um, as you said, this this deals with uh, a not particularly good person who yes. uh, was convicted of possessing a firearm while being under a domestic violence restraining order, but he was certainly yep. engaged in plenty of other conduct that we wouldn't want someone to be <laughs> engaging in typically in society. And so the fact yeah. that this ruling came down just put so much attention and so many eyes on the Supreme Court, what they might do, what will they let this stand? Um, so that just adds, I think, to sort of the excitement or, or the attention around this case. Yeah, it, it certainly does. Rahimi is the least sympathetic plaintiff you could probably think of. Yeah, um, this is not a case, as we talked about in the past, that was backed by the gun rights groups. The gun rights movement was not trying to get this case to the Supreme Court. Right. They're much more focused on, you know, assault weapons bans or magazine limits or uh, concealed carry restrictions. This comes from this is actually a public defender who was uh, involved in this case. And it comes out of the the pot of criminal cases that involve the Second Amendment or involve gun rights. And um, those are much more of a wild card, right? These, these sorts of cases are wild cards. They're, they're not really as predictable as, as a lot of the other cases where you're used to seeing that talk about the Second Amendment. And so Rahimi himself, um, boy, he's got a long, he's got a long, rap sheet, or at least a long list of accusations and allegations against him, charges against him. Um, so he was um, accused of committing uh, an act of violence against his mother, the, the mother of his child, which is what led to the domestic violence restraining order. Um, but he doesn't, have, to this, to that point, he doesn't have any felony convictions, right? And he still, he still doesn't to, this moment, as, as far as I'm aware. However, the police found that he had guns in his house while under this restraining order, which under federal law makes you a prohibited person. You can't own guns. You can't buy guns. You can't possess them um, when you're the subject of a domestic violence restraining order, um, whether it's a federal one or, or state one. In this case, it's a state order. But 
the reason the cops found that he had guns was because he went on this like crazy crime spree, basically. <laughs> He's accused of going on a crazy crime spree, I should say, uh, that involved multiple shootings. He um, shot at somebody that he had sold Percocet to. He shot at somebody during a road rage incident after he cut them off. He um, shot into the air at a Whataburger because his friend's card was declined. These are the allegations against him. And, and those are all obviously serious crimes as well that are very likely to result in felony convictions for him, which means he'll probably have his gun rights taken away under those provisions. But the key bit here is that while investigating those other crimes uh, and those other allegations, the police found that he had guns in his house, even though he was subject to this order. And so the Fifth Circuit looked at this case and it was, it's interesting, right? Because they originally, they've, they've looked at the, this exact law before in the Fifth Circuit um, and even very recently ruled that it comports with the Second Amendment. It's not a violation of the Second Amendment to take someone's gun rights away if they're subject to a domestic violence restraining order. But then Bruin happened and that changed how lower courts are meant to examine gun laws and whether they're constitutional. And uh, now the Fifth Circuit had to find historical analogs for this kind of restriction dating back to the founding era. And essentially what the panel found, this is a three-judge panel that ruled in favor of Rahimi, was that they, they didn't exist these this kind of restriction for this purpose at, during the founding era. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of uh, there's an old adage in sort of legal cases that, uh, you know, hard cases make bad law or bad cases make bad law or just the facts uh, can get a little tricky. Um, and as you said, uh, it's sort of this perfect storm of certainly a, an individual that nobody you would think no one would want to be able to possess a gun. But under this Bruin standard, at least as it's been articulated by the Supreme Court thus far, if there's no historical analog that is, you know, relevantly similar to the conduct he's being accused of, it sort of leaves the judges without tools to, to say that he can constitutionally be per, like permitted to be um, disarmed, at least permanently yeah. or temporarily. I mean, that's case, the whole so. test, right? right? The, if the Supreme Court or if the Second Amendment's text covers the conduct, in this case, owning guns, right, which it obviously does, then is there a historical tradition that justifies the modern law, right? Uh, and, and the Supreme Court's looking for not just like a one-off law here or there that's in the same, you know, that's somewhat similar to the modern restriction, but like they really want an, a continuing tradition of it, that this was something that even uh, not necessarily, doesn't have to predate the founding era, but it's stronger case if you can find through, uh, you know, basically English common law history, the same sort of restriction that existed back then um, and then carried on through the founding, through the ratification of the Constitution and the Second Amendment, and then uh, on from that point. So if, if it came later on, if it didn't, if there was nothing like this until the 20th century, the Supreme Court says, well, that's that doesn't work. You know, that's not in line with what the meaning of the Second Amendment is. And so, uh, you know, the, the Fifth Circuit went through and tried to look at a number of different um, 
laws from the founding period that the this, the, the federal government had put up as potential analogs. And, um, you know, it, it just, it found that there just wasn't anything that was very close to this. I mean, especially because this is a restraining order rather than a conviction that we're talking about. And it's, um, and it's about protecting someone from a specific threat. This is how the fifth circuit framed it at least, uh, it's about protecting someone from a specific, an individual from a specific threat, uh, from a person and, or not a specific threat, but a general threat from a single person. Um, and so it's not, it's not about disarming dangerous groups of people necessarily people who are dangerous to society. That's what they, they found that, you know, some of these old restrictions on, well, some of the racist laws that we've talked about in the past, uh, restrictions on selling guns to native Americans or, or blacks or, um, other groups that, uh, the legal theory goes were dangerous to society. And therefore, uh, there's sort of this dangerousness standard that some courts have looked at for who can be restricted. Um, it, it wasn't just those groups. It was also like loyalists were included in, in there. You could disarm somebody for not taking a loath of oil, loyalty to the United States after the revolution. And so that was another idea of like, well, these people are considered to be dangerous to society as a group. And so domestic violence restraining order is more about according to the Fifth Circuit, at least, trying to keep someone from owning guns because they are a dangerous threat to a specific individual, uh, namely whoever took out the restraining order. And so they said that's not really the, the same thing. It's because it's an individual being restricted instead of a, like a group of people. Um, and so yeah, <clears throat> they also looked at things like surety laws, which were uh, also, not, they weren't similar for a number of reasons, right? Um, surety laws had to do with somebody placing, p uh, p putting up basically a cash amount to ensure themselves if they were accused of being dangerous um, so that they could carry a firearm with them. And <clears throat> obviously, there's some similarity on the dangerousness side of the, the individual being accused of them being specifically dangerous, but the punishment side is different, right? The, they, somebody in that situation would have to put up, you know, a, basically a bond or a, I mean, it was called a surety, but as a piece, a bunch of money uh, to then be able to carry their guns. And so it wasn't a total ban on them owning firearms uh, for the duration of the, uh, you know, this period of time or where they're under a restraining order. So, you know, there were, there were a number of ways where the fifth circuit said these, these laws that have been relied on aren't actually good analogs. Yeah. And you've seen sort of critics of the Bruin standard overall sort of glom onto that, basically that analysis and, and say that that's a weakness of the Bruin test. The fact that right. well, this, is, this is a modern problem that we clearly as a modern society want to deal with. And if there's just if it was just silent, if the historical tradition was silent on this issue, then that's an inherent weakness in the Bruin test is at least what they would argue. So that, yeah, that's Jay Charles think, has made that argument, the professor um, and former head of uh, Duke University's Firearms Law Center. Uh, right. That's been something that he's talked a lot about. But um, which but yeah, I mean, there, there's 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 a lot to it. though. It's not clear exactly how the Supreme Court is going to come down on this. Right. Yeah, right. And that's what I think is the interesting part is just how do the justice because obviously the justices, they just established this new test. You know, some would argue it's the Heller test, but they've 
articulated it explicitly, at least in Bruin, as the standard going forward. So just a year out, you can't imagine that they're going to abandon the Bruin test. So how do they re-articulate the Bruin test uh, in this specific scenario? Do they say it's permissible? Do they find some rationale where it's permissible? Do they get maybe a little looser with the historical analogs that are allowed? Or do they simply say that, you know, the Fifth Circuit got it right and it's just the history is what it is. I think that's going to be pretty interesting to see how they come down on that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I wrote a whole analysis piece about this uh, back in February when the Rahimi case was first decided uh, that looks at sort of the how is the Supreme Court going to come out on this? But, uh, you know, it's it's really is something the Supreme Court had to take up, honestly, uh, sooner than later, because as you wrote in an analysis piece, too, this was beginning to cause a lot of circuit splits. These um, or not a lot of circuit splits, but it caused a circuit split. The prohibited persons uh, categories, uh, not the domestic violence restraining order one in particular, but this all of the different ones that exist in federal law, uh, you're starting to get circuits ruling different ways on them. And then at the same time, you're getting a lot of district courts going completely opposite directions on this same question as well. Um, and, and so this is kind of something they had to at some point address because it's becoming a major issue. Um, now, they, the Supreme Court has talked a little bit about these prohibitions in federal law, right? Yeah. Uh, they, you know, in Dicta and Heller and uh, reiterated McDonald and once again reiterated in Bruin, they've sort of said it's, you know, it sort of just like said it's self-evident almost like, oh, nothing we're saying here should cast doubt on felons not being able to own guns. Um, so that's yeah, well, sort of been not, I mean, they're not saying it's evident that like the law is constitutional. They're just I don't know. It's kind of more of a where these rulings don't explicitly implicate the felon in possession bans or the mental sure. uh, people ban for mental illness. Right. They, I guess it's fair. It, lower courts have interpreted it as them saying it's self-evidently yes. correct, which yes. they have some, at some that's gotten in them into some trouble in some rulings as we've covered uh, previously. So I guess that is a fair <clears throat> distinction. They, they haven't said specifically it's constitutional. They just said nothing where we've said thus far has cast them into doubt. Um, yeah. They're kind of implying they're constitutional or at the very least that they're not affected by Heller and, and right. McDonald Bruin, you saw it repeated in the concurrence from Roberts, which also kind of gets to like, how is the Supreme court going to come out on this? Because if you recall the concurrence in Roberts, uh, the, the Roberts, sorry, the Kavanaugh, <laughs> Kavanaugh wrote the concurrence. Roberts joined the concurrence, which gives you two. And then um, if you add that to the three liberals who are almost certainly going to vote to uphold this, uh, maybe they won't, who knows, we'll see, but I would imagine they probably will. You know, that gives you five, which is all you need. Um, now, obviously, the Bruin concurrence doesn't deal with this question of, uh, you know, the restraining order, whether that's um, a uh, high enough legal standard to strip someone of their constitutionally guaranteed rights. Um, that's probably the strongest argument that that Rahimi has, I would, I would imagine. Um, because I don't think that the court is going to say, yeah, there were no pro that, 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 that there isn't a historical tradition of trying to keep dangerous people from owning firearms. They, but they might, um, say that a, a restraining order process is not a strong enough 
process in terms of the legal protections it offers um, to justify taking away somebody's constitutionally guaranteed rights. I mean, it's it's hard to say though exactly where they're going to come out. Especially, um, oops, sorry, I would say especially. There's an, another wrinkle: the circuit split you referred to earlier, like the range decision in the Third Circuit, and there's a which struck down a nonviolent felony in possession prohibition or uh, conviction. And then the Eighth Circuit came on the opposite side of that decision. The federal government has not yet applied for cert in those cases. But if it does, which I assume it will because it's dealing with a federal statute, could the Supreme Court take that as well and sort of deal with these issues together, sort of like you've seen with the affirmative yeah. action cases where they, they, they're they relevantly similar cases, so they decided them together. And I think adding a more sympathetic plaintiff in range, for example, with a, it's a nonviolent felon who, you know, his food stamp fraud is not exactly something right. that most people are concerned with when it comes to gun ownership. Yeah, that a couple thousand dollars of food stamp fraud is not the right. same level as what Rahimi is accused of doing. You could see maybe perhaps that swaying how this comes down, where they just deal with the broader question of who is covered by the Second Amendment in terms, of, instead of just narrowly focusing on the Rahimi case in particular. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could. Um, I don't know. Maybe I wonder if they would have just relisted Rahimi if they were going to do that. It's yeah. hard to say. It's hard it's a good to say point. Sure. Maybe we'll, we'll have to have like a Supreme Court expert on to try and because uh, the Supreme Court is notoriously hard to, um, you know, suss out exactly. What right. They, Reading the tea leaves is tough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you got to really get to really follow the Supreme Court to understand that stuff. But either way, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they come out and, and yeah, whether they try to take a broader approach to answering some of these questions or if they just go piecemeal. Uh, I mean, you know, to me, I kind of wonder if they won't do the piecemeal thing because like they handed down the big ruling in Bruin and now they're, you know, they're going to have to answer the conflicts that come up from that. But I, I doubt they're going to want to completely redo the test or anything uh, along those lines. It's the same exact court right? That, that just handed it down last year. So I don't <laughs> think they're going to come back and be like, never mind, we're going to change this test completely again. Right. They'll probably just give you the their take on how to do the test properly in this particular circumstance, um, which will give some guidance. But I mean, not, you know, that's that's what that's really how they do it with most other uh, cases. Right. It's not you're not necessarily getting a new First Amendment standard you know, test every year. Right. But you, even though you'll get First Amendment cases all the time. Second Amendment has just not gotten a lot of attention from the court up to this point. Um, I mean, you know, probably in, in large part because for most, you know, until like 1934, there weren't federal gun laws and um, the incorporation doctrine where the, the Bill of Rights and the, you know, uh, applies to state laws as well. That didn't come until later either. So there wasn't that much opportunity for the court to talk about the Second Amendment before the federal government started passing gun laws. So, um, you know, that's part of the reason why there's not as much history there. But but the practical reality is that there isn't a lot of history and they really just need to take more cases to build up a better understanding for the lower courts of exactly how this test is supposed to play out. Right. Um, yeah. And I guess that's exactly what we're going to see. So we will certainly stay on top of that. Um, and so make sure you Keep up the reload. Keep uh, subscribe to our newsletter and buy a membership. But uh, speaking of memberships, we have a member uh, segment right now. One of my favorite segments. We're going to go talk to an actual reload member. 
All right, it's time for one of my favorite segments, uh, our member segment. We have Reload member Michael with us this time. How are you doing today, Michael? Doing great. Uh, I want to say definitely thanks for having me. Uh, really uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. We always appreciate whenever members want to come on and do one of these segments. It's good to get to know the community uh, that really makes the Reload possible. And I'm always interested in you know people's individual personal stories and and uh, it's I think it adds a lot to the show. It gets people, uh, you know, some FaceTime with actual gun owners in, in a lot of circumstances. Not everybody who's a member is a gun owner, of course. There's, you can be a Reload member and not be a gun owner. But many people who are interested in what we write about naturally are gun owners. And I believe you are a gun yes. owner, right? Correct. Yes, I am. Since what, uh, 1997. Yep. Nice. What, uh, what's your latest gun? Uh, latest is a uh, SIG pre three P365X macro uh, with the Romeo Zero. Already thinking about potentially just looking at it and reading, uh, going for the Hollow Sun, but it remains yeah. to be seen. Got to fire it first. We are we're gun twins. Then though. that's my latest <laughs> gun as well. Um, as uh, members probably already know from reading the the Sunday newsletter, but uh, yeah, the. I mean, the, the, the zero, the zero elites. All right. I got, sounds like we have the exact same one. Cause okay. I also bought the factory uh, optic installed version it has a little shield on it too, yes. which is giving me some trouble with, uh, with holsters. It does fit the Enigma. Okay. Uh, the Filster Enigma holster works perfectly with it, which okay, I cannot say that. about the alien gear or the CYA holsters, some of these other ones that I've tried, mm -hmm. the shield creates clearance issues. Even if you've got the optic optic okay. cut, they'll, uh, they'll say they're optic cut, but uh, not necessarily. No, <laughs> the little thermal won't help sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. But uh, um, yeah. And I also have considered, I, if I was going to do it over again, I might go to the hollow sun instead of buying the optic red, like the installed one. Cause it does seem like the, what is the 507 K or whatever. Yeah. seems like a pretty sweet option uh, and a bit of an upgrade from the, the SIG versions, but, but honestly it, it works well enough. Mm -hmm. my, my main issue was that it, the battery died yeah. <laughs> really fast, but uh, I haven't had that issue again. And if it doesn't keep dying, <laughs> um, you know, every two months, then oh, gosh. it might not be a big deal. Yeah. I guess I'll have to see. Um, what's your favorite gun? Um, I'd probably say my VP9. I uh, love mm -hmm. that. And then uh, that and actually is one I have since sold, but was my uh, Glock 23C. That was actually the first uh, handgun ever purchased uh, mm -hmm. once again back in 97. And uh, just always, I sold it many years ago, but always had a soft spot. Um, now, the interesting thing too, that was obviously during uh, the uh, assault weapons ban. Mm. And what a lot of people don't realize is that you could still get high capacity magazines then. They just had to be manufactured before the start date. So, mm -hmm. I got mine with 13 rounds because it was 40, the 23, and then uh, got some more. Ended up selling it to a really good friend of mine years later. But uh, that and, like I said, probably the VP9 are probably my favorite uh, firearms I've owned. Mm. VP9, so do you, do you uh, watch Active Self-Protection as well? Yes, I do. Yeah. Korea. I think the he switched John to the P30, Korea though, I think. Yeah, but, did, yeah, yeah, I think he did, but he was always a big VP9 guy for a long time. I think anybody that does self-defense, uh, John does one heck of a job with, uh, with just really breaking down and dissecting what it means to use something for defensive use and the good, the bad, and just the what the heck are you thinking? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite. And uh, I guess I should plug the Active Self-Protection podcast since I do the news update on that every week. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, 
good as time as any to to tell people to check that out or if they're if they're interested in you know self defense stories that's the best podcast out there for it I, absolutely I think. Um, but so tell me a little bit about how you got into guns, your relationship with guns over the years. You know, uh, give us a little bit of insight about yourself. Certainly. So uh, when I grew up, I really uh, my great uh, both my grandparents, grandfathers hunted. But by the time the grandkids came along, I'm the youngest. Uh, the grandmothers had pretty much said they're they need to be put up. And so they were. So they were, for lack of a better word, they were in gun cabinets. That's it. Um, always admired from afar. Probably the closest I had ever done was shoot one of my grandfather's uh, air pistols. That was about it. Um, when uh, I, I like to say, you know, it, it's interesting, kind of like what they call, you know, uh, 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 well, I apologize, um, uh, but gun, uh, gun people 2.0, if you will. And I apologize. Mm, gun kinda, culture 2.0. Thank you. Yeah. I apologize uh, to Professor Yomain. I butchered that. Mm -hmm. But um, I kind of feel like I was that a little bit early. Primarily, I wasn't really interested in hunting. I did like handguns. It wasn't necessarily from movies or anything. It was it was protection. I worked actually at a retail shop and had to do night drops. And we weren't in the dangerous part of town, but it was not exactly the the best best lighting or anything else. And I just wanted something sure. to feel protected. So uh, that's when I once again turned twenty one and got my first uh, my first Glock, if you will, and outfitted it and did everything else. And you know, just it it, it kind of became a little bit of a I don't want to say love affair, but a little bit of a passion. Uh, got many throughout the years. I remember, you know, Colt Defender, the old, uh, uh, was it Rossi 971, 357 Magnum, several other, primarily handguns, generally. Uh, didn't really yeah. much with rifles or anything. And um, then um, kind of one of the things I really wanted to focus on that you and I, I think, uh, when, uh, when we corresponded with uh, is uh, it really is, is for me, um, I, I have to admit, depression, mental illness, um, and actually addiction plays a part of my story. Uh, never was suicidal. Uh, never thought about, you know, using my firearms to, to hurt somebody or murder somebody. But I think especially hearing today's, uh, a lot of things that's going on today, mass shootings, gun control, gun safety, common sense, whatever you want to call it. Um, mental illness plays a lot, a large part in it. And uh, I'm, I consider myself very grateful and very blessed where um the first time I ever had a had a serious issue with mental illness and depression, um, didn't really know where to turn. Uh, I was lucky I had a friend that I was able at that time to give my give my firearms to. Yeah. And I just asked him, would you mind holding it for me uh, until I feel better? And right. and he did. And I, I sought the help I needed and, and got the help uh, at the time. I was still honestly dealing with uh, with addiction in, in terms of alcoholism, which I don't mind telling you is, is, is a bear in and of itself. Um, that really hadn't taken a grip yet. It was primarily depression. And, uh, I didn't have my firearms for about, I don't know, maybe one and a half, two years, I think. And, um, you know, it, it, for me, I think for gun owners, that's an issue we have was asking for help. And, I, and you hear it in today's politics by a lot of people, you know, red flag laws, which, you know, once again, in theory, seem they'd work. The problem is most people, I don't, I don't want someone coming in and just telling me, yes, you have to give these up now because someone said something and they don't understand the case. I don't believe most, most doctors really are, most doctors and professionals these days really want to understand the gun culture and understand why it is important for people, even if they are struggling, to, to still be able to defend themselves and defend their families. Yeah, it's yeah. a big part of it. You, you've certainly seen this uh, discussion come up a lot um, in, in recent years inside the gun uh, owning community, right? Because 
it, it, there isn't necessarily that inherent understanding of the culture of gun ownership from a lot of medical professionals or suicide prevention uh, groups that are, you know, general suicide prevention groups. And it can create the sort of issues that you're discussing here, right? Uh, but you have seen these sort of more grassroots efforts from the gun owning community um, and to some extent from the gun industry itself in trying to come up with solutions that are tailored for gun owners who are struggling with mental health uh, issues, with suicidal ideation, with addiction. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the th one of the options out there now that's more developed in recent years something that perhaps was not available to you at the time, although it sounds like basically, you know, what what was already happening in the community, uh, as you're describing here, it's kind of developed into this grassroots movement of, uh, you know, hold my gun. Yes. Right. Because what you're talking about is sounds very similar to what that effort is, which is, you know, somebody's going through a mental health struggle. Uh, in your case, you had someone that you could turn to to hold on to your firearms uh, while you were dealing with that. Um, and that's kind of the exact idea of this program that's come up in recent years. And I believe that's done uh, through what FFLs. So they, they have insurance, mm -hmm. they have everything else. It's not just like you're handing it to a gun shop and then they yeah. just basically, they can do what they want with it. Yeah. Right. It's a little bit more of a formal mm -hmm. uh, program for uh, that, that sort of centered around that solution that, that you took advantage of, thankfully, right? Um, but can you walk us through yeah. what that was like for you to make that decision? Uh, you know, obviously for gun owners, I mean, you're describing yourself here as as the, like this classic gun culture 2.0 type uh, person who uh, wants a firearm for self-defense, for protection. Um, I'm sure uh, a lot of people tie gun ownership to part of their, especially political identity, mm -hmm. right? It, yeah. It's it's certainly something that a lot of people put um, a, a lot of uh, value in as part of their uh, core system of beliefs of like being an American, of being self-sufficient, of being able to protect yourself and your loved ones. So what what was it like to realize that you needed to give that up for at least a period of time to to really ensure your own safety in, in that way? Right. For for me, it, it was a little twofold, and I, I did want to. I'll add something real quick. I do think uh, another thing is honestly the masculinity part. I mean, mm -hmm. it, at the end of the day, I think it's hard for men. We're the largest number of suicides yep. out there. We typically are the largest owner of guns. Um, it, it is difficult. While I never contemplated suicide, most people that do, even with a firearm, I know a lot of the gun control and common sense say, "Oh, it's it, you know, people get a gun, they do it really quickly." People think about suicide long and hard. Mm -hmm. Honestly, the only reason I don't think I ever hit that that wall for there is because I had a relative die uh, at, in, in their early 20s. And for me, I saw the impact it had on my family. Um, yeah. I think that's why I never went there. Uh, but going back to your point, <clears throat> for me, it, it was difficult because I did feel I'm giving up my ability to defend myself with what I've been with, what, what I've trained with and whatnot. But I think most people when most people with really to think about it when i saw my family they were concerned about me um i wasn't married at the time but i had other family members that just said look you know we're worried about you my brother just said if you ever need something if you would need me to hold something let me know i'm just i don't think you're there yet but we're worried about you mm -hmm. and for me that's what sunk in 
I, I kind of had to let that really overtake the other concerns with, hey, I'm going to be defenseless. I lived in an apartment at the time. It was relatively safe. And at the end of the day, I just kind of looked at it and said, it's, it's either one or the other. Either, you know, I, I trust this person. I know they're going to give it back when I ask them to. Um, I trust their opinion. I think the biggest thing is, is it was safety. It was a safe place. It was something that I knew that even though I wasn't 100% in control of my emotions and myself and my depression at the time, I was in control and could say, look, I would like my firearms back. And it was fine. We, we had a predefined, and I set the terms, six months, we'll see how I feel. Didn't feel great in six months, we went another. It kind of went on like that. Yeah. I think it's much easier to give the gun owner, unless they're in severe crisis, the option to say, I can make the decision. And I think most rational people would uh, be able to say, look, I can go a little bit longer without it, or I'm still not through what I'm dealing with. I'm still uncovering things. And it sounds like a, a key component of that was this level of trust that you had with with the other person who was willing to to hold your gun for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of um, maybe well intentioned uh, things like you just you know you brought up red flag laws. It seems um, those get used obviously politically. The arguments tend to be around mass shootings, but in practice, they mainly are used uh, in suicidal uh, situations. And, um, you know, they're well-intentioned, surely, but um, they do have drawbacks of the fact that, you know, the, that there's not that level of trust involved mm -hmm. when you have the cops come or court order you to give up your guns. It's a different situation. Maybe it's necessary in some circumstances, um, but it's not you're going to be your main. It really shouldn't be your main Correct. approach to trying to help somebody who's a gun owner and who's having suicidal ideation. Right? Yeah. Like, uh, you, you would presumably, and this is, this also goes back to even, even when it's not um, something like a red flag law or there's no distinct direct action being taken to remove somebody's guns from them. If they talk uh, about their health, mental health struggles, but there, there can be situations like where doctors will ask if you own a gun or, uh, then it sort of creates this atmosphere, I think, for a lot of therapists or doctors where there's sort of an implication to the patient that if I tell you I am a gun owner and I'm having a mental health uh, you know, crisis, that will automatically mean I don't uh, have any recourse to keeping my firearms. And so maybe I won't tell you at all. Correct. Right? And I, and I, and speaking to that, I'm actually, I go to see a therapist now and, and they know I own firearms. I'm very, as kind of, as you can tell, I'm pretty blunt. Um, I really don't hold much back. And I told them from the get go, look here, you know, here you go. I, I am a firearm owner. Um, you know, and we talked and, and part of that problem was when I was going through issues with alcohol and my wife had another experience. She asked me, she said, I would just feel better if you have this with somebody. And I did. So the, mm -hmm. so it repeated itself. Thankfully, everything's fine. Uh, and I've been sober since 2017. I'm sorry, 2014. My apologies. So that's awesome. But, um, that's fantastic. Thank you. But um, you know, a, a lot of it really comes down to, I, I think, it goes back to the trust. You know, I always like to say this. I I didn't get better until I found a doctor that I could trust and that I could listen to and that I was willing to be honest with. And I think that goes a long way, not only erasing the stigma with mental and addiction issues, but also too being able to just say, look, you know, I saw him a couple of weeks ago and he was like, you know, are you okay? We're, everything's fine, but hey, great, great time to have a short visit when things are going great. 
but you know, it, it really opens it up to just, you can be honest and say, I'm going through a tough time. And, and we've had the conversation where he said, look, if I ever feel you're in a little bit of a danger, or you're getting on the edge because I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to call your wife. And I gave him permission, obviously, but we're, we're going to take a look at, at what we need to do just to make sure everyone's safe. Mm -hmm. That's the end right. of the day. That's all. I think that's all anyone can ask. It's being safe with myself, being safe with my family, my friends, et cetera, having that trust there, but also having the realization that just because I choose to give something up doesn't mean anything's being taken away. Right. And I think that's a big, big difference. I don't like anything when it's taken away from me, but if I choose to give it up for a reason, I can rationalize it all day, all night. Yeah. And, and I think that that's such a key point in this discussion, uh, you know, because, um, if people want to help others who are struggling, because, you know, thankfully you're in, sounds like you're in a healthy place now. Mm -hmm. You, you're somebody who is, who's taken those proactive steps to get help. A lot of people don't do that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and certainly it's not an easy thing to do. Right. I mean, uh, for anyone, but, um, it makes it even harder if there's this artificial barrier in the play in the way that you might not be able to trust when, you know, when you walk into a therapist's office that they're not going to do something you really don't want them to do in terms yeah. of taking your firearms away from mm -hmm. you at the moment. Um, and so what, what, what was it that uh, when you were looking for a therapist, when you were looking to talk to somebody professionally, uh, you know, about this, that, you know, how did they gain your trust? What was it about it's, them that you were able to open up on these fronts? The, there's, there's two things. Um, the first one, and I hate to sound like this, they didn't take insurance. Um, I'm, I'm very grateful where I can afford to pay for the hourly rate. Um, every, every therapist or every psychiatrist, anybody I've ever seen before has always been, it's in, you're in the office, you're out of the office. You feel like they're listening for a second and then you're gone. They give you medicine and then on your way, come back and tell us how you feel. Um, my first appointment with this doctor was almost two hours. My wife was in there with me for about uh, probably the first 45 minutes, just really discussing not only what I saw, but what she saw. Um, and I had that level of trust with my wife. I had that level of, uh, you know, just really, I, I want I want you to tell him what you see if, if I have issues and when I'm going down, if I'm on a slope or whatever have you. And he just sat there and listened, didn't, didn't give anything and just said, look, you know, it's, you know, Let's give it a shot for a few for a few ones, and we'll kind of see from there. Um, I want to see how you are on this medication that you're currently on. I want to see how it works for you. And it took me to being at a, at a bottom, if you will, and I dragged my my butt to his office at probably one of my lowest points in my life. And he saw the difference between me being on medication that worked and medication that didn't. And the first thing was really just instead of just shoving me right out of his office and saying, "Here's a prescription. Here you go. This will fix everything." He really took the time to half an hour, ask me questions, what was going on the days prior. And for me, it was the listening, the understanding and not talking about anything extraneous. Just I, I, I'm talking to you now. Don't tell me what you don't want to, but just please answer me honestly. You, you had luckily, in my opinion, the courage to come in here at your lowest and you could have blown the appointment off. And I didn't. I'm very grateful, very grateful yeah. for that. So he's very intentional, it sounds like. Oh, extremely. And, yeah, and gave I think you that's space, just it. Yeah. yeah, to to explain things. That's and he, he took the time. I mean, for like for the yeah. short the shortened version, he really took the time hmm. to listen to what I was saying and really understand it. I, and, I mean, he didn't yeah. like stigma try to stigmatize you for mm -hmm. guys. He didn't try to tell you like no, oh, yeah, nothing like that. 
nope that that uh, he knew i was a gun owner from the very beginning yeah. um he asked I, once again i'm obviously very honest about it and that subject didn't come up until about three sessions in and he asked me just where are they and i told him at the time they were with a relative and mm-hmm. they're just for safekeeping because my wife asked me to yeah. and just kind of went in you know i wasn't suicidal wasn't threatening anybody wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about any homicidal right just made her feel better but right. three sessions in, it was still focused on me, and that's it, and what I was doing. Well, three yeah. sessions, that's not bad. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's something that a lot of uh, therapists can learn from when they, mm-hmm. you know, especially they're working with a gun owner. You know, I mean, you know, you brought up David Yamani earlier, uh, Professor Yamani, and one of his sayings is uh, that, um, was it, guns are normal and normal people own guns? Yes. Yes. Right. And so, you know, that's something I think that needs to come into the discussion mm-hmm. when it comes to mental health treatment. Like the gun ownership in America is is an extremely normal thing. Forty six percent of adults uh, report having a gun in the home. Um, thirty, you know, thirty three, thirty three to thirty five, somewhere in there, report owning a gun personally. Mm-hmm. So that's hundreds of millions of people. Um, it's not an abnormal thing. It shouldn't be treated that way. It shouldn't be stigmatized when somebody comes into a doctor's office. Uh, and I'm sure it, hopefully it's not in most of them, yeah. but you know, that's an understanding that, that therapists need to have if they want to try and, uh, reach this community of, of people who own guns. Um, because yeah, if, otherwise it, it can lead to, um, people not wanting to seek out that sort of that sort of care and treatment, but I'm, I'm very glad that you did and that you've you. done the work uh, on this front. Cause even with, you know, even with all that, even finding a good therapist, have, it sounds like you had a nice, uh, a good community around you to the points, you know, you have people who really cared about you and you had Absolutely. stayed connected with that's super important too. Mm. It's not just about the, you know, the people, the, the trained professionals, it's also mm. the people around you. Um, don't, don't get me wrong. There, there was definitely some uh, some tough love in there that made me seek out some sure. help. But yeah, but no. To your point, yes, it, it definitely was that. And uh, just if you don't mind me adding a point, I think that one of the yeah. one of the biggest one of the biggest struggles right now is social media, uh, Twitter, which has great great stuff on it too. But you have really, I feel like everyone can isolate themselves, whether you you are right wing ideology, left wing, and the center. And I think for people with mental health issues, it really gets distilled down into holy crap. They both either they want me to have anything I want, or they are will, they're wanting to come in and jack boots and take it. Yeah. Who do I listen to? And at the end of the day, that's one of the things I love about this podcast and your coverage is, is I really feel it's very even keeled. And I may not agree with everything all the time, depending on my political sure. leanings. But at the end of the day, it, the the joke I always like to say is the adults are speaking. <laughs> And that's what we try to go for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think that people do appreciate that level of um, uh, seriousness, right, to, to the conversation. I mean, this is something that affects so many people and it deserves to be taken seriously. And people who report on it should be informed about what they're reporting on. Right. There's just some basic level stuff that that we believe in at the reload that, uh, you know, is lost, I think, in a lot of other Agreed. forms, uh, regardless of what side of the aisle you're looking at or mm-hmm. Uh, how, you know, if you're looking at big giant publications, if you're looking at, uh, you know, little um, publications, there's a lot of places that just don't adhere to that level of sober, serious approach with informed, independent, uh, you know, staff. And 
It's a complex um, issue, and it can't be distilled easily. And I think I mean, right. I, I know I know that's the media's job is to distill everything as the soundbite get ad dollars, but it's just like there's so much going on behind it. Right. Yeah, and it's responsibility I think as a reporter to your audience to do your best to inform them rather than inflame them. That's, an, that's another David Yamani uh, saying. That he's got a lot of good ones. Uh, light over heat, uh, right? And mm-hmm. and so um, you know, I think. That's that's what we try to do. And and I'm hope, you know, it's working so far. We're able to thanks to members, you know, like yourself, we are able to keep the lights on and keep reporting, which is all I can really ask for. Right. And hey, almost Um, had two memberships there. So great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I try to also do the customer service. a lot of Phenomenal customer service, by the way. Yes. Save, (laughs) Save me some money. All right. Well, we really appreciate you joining the show and, and giving us some really good insight into your story. I mean, it's, it's, you. it's an important story. I always love when we have the a member segment that can also uh, just uh, converge on things that we we focus on reporting about, uh, you know, get and talking to like real everyday, you know, gun owners is such an important thing that just doesn't happen that often in, in media. So I'm always glad whenever we're able to do it. I appreciate I appreciate being on. And once again, I mean, it's uh, it's definitely been an honor to be on with you guys and talk about it for sure. Absolutely. Well, anyone listening wants to join the podcast for a member segment, you should head on over to the reload and, and buy a membership today. Uh, you'll get not only uh, the opportunity to appear on the show, you'll get early access to it on Sundays. Um, everyone else gets it on Monday. And you'll also get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and reporting that you will, will not find anywhere else. And it is also, of course, the way that we keep the lights on here at The Reload. So uh, head on over to reload.com and check that out today. See if, see if you like what you see and uh, go ahead and buy a membership. But that's it for this week. We will see you guys again next week.